Let me catch you up a little bit. We're in this series in Nehemiah. We've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. We've gotten to chapter 9, and kind of the Cliff Notes version is Nehemiah uh, understood that there was a, a, a just uh, the walls of Jerusalem were in disrepair. They, they, were, they were broken down. They needed a lot of help. He uh, rallies the king, gets resources, and comes and, and, and works to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They do that. He rallies the people. They rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And, and, and so now they've got their walls right where they want them, the gates right where they want them. And now they're working on the community. They're working on the people. Uh, they're, they're working on... Um, walking according to God's way again. If you remember last week, they came across, they'd read the Word of God and realized how far their lives were from obedience to that Word of God. And then because of that, they fell under conviction and, uh, and, and then began to walk in repentance. And if you remember, last week we talked about repentance and a, a repentance that ultimately leads to rejoicing because they, they were repenting and then they were walking into the, the festival of booths where they all lived in tents for about a week and, and, and praised God for His deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt and provision of them in the wilderness and moving them into the promised land. So they're, they're giving praise to God for this. Uh, so, so their repentance was led to rejoicing. But then we get to chapter 9 and they kind of go back to repenting. And we're going to see that. We're going to see kind of some of the things they do to go back to repenting. And, and one of the things I think we can garner from that is Simply, they, they still felt the weight of their sin on them, and they hadn't felt that they had dealt with it seriously. And so they, they come again to deal with their sin in the presence of God and, and to deal with it in a very authentic, vulnerable, public way uh, so that they can uh, you know, walk with God in complete transparency and, and walk with Him in, 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 in further obedience. And so they're going to come to the stage of repentance again. Uh, and then they're going to pray. The rest of the chapter is kind of a, a prayer unto God. And we're going to see, I think, some healthy things when it comes to our prayer life. If there's two things that Christians need a lot of help in, it's in the things we've talked about the last two weeks. We probably don't have a great grasp of what repentance looks like. And then, secondly, uh, I don't know, maybe your prayer life is great. I would say a lot of believers' prayer life struggles. And, uh, you, you know, I was, I was looking up, there's a lot of ways to help you practically with, with uh, how to pray. There's a lot of, like, models. You can find. There's acrostics. I'm not typically a fan of acrostics. It makes me feel extra Baptist-y, but, but uh, they have acrostics. And, uh, and, and there's one that's like um, pray, P-R-A-Y, P for praise, R for repentance, A for ask, and why for yield? I mean, I think it's great. I think it's a great model uh, of uh, of stepping into. It. As a matter of fact, it kind of goes along with the flow of Nehemiah nine and 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 how they're praying this prayer of praise. They pray a prayer of confession. Pray a prayer of petition. They're asking God for things, and then they 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 make a covenant with God. They they yield to His will. They they walk according to His way. And so so we're gonna look at this. We're gonna look at Nehemiah. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. It's a lot of text. I would encourage you to read it on your own. Um, but I will be reading it in sections. So so let's dive into the first three verses of Nehemiah nine. And here we see again just uh, their 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 repentance. It says now. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. 
And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. So the first thing I want us to see before we really get into the prayer is just their continued uh, repentance. And uh, again, they're dealing seriously with their sin, which I think is, is an important note for us, that we need to be a people that deals with our sin. I think culturally, one of the things that we tend to do is just you know, try to ignore it, try to hide from dealing with it until enough time has passed for us to kind of maybe forget that that has happened or, 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 you know, maybe we think God has forgotten that has happened and we just never really deal with it. But I, I think we should be a people, and I want to make the argument throughout this sermon, that we should be a people that are quick to deal with our sin. And not only is it best for us spiritually, but it is most worshipful of God for us to deal with that and, and vulnerably, authentically, and, and, and quickly. Uh, you see some of their processes for repenting here. The first thing they do is they enter into a time of fasting. Now, if you're not familiar with fasting, fasting, biblically speaking, is going without food for a period of time to focus on God. It's, 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 it's replacing food with with God, with His Word, with prayer. We're, we're, you know, we're going without so we can focus in on God and, and give Him all of our tech, uh, attention, affection. And, uh, and that's what fasting does for us. It, 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 it heightens our, our, our senses to be able to f- zero in on Him, focus in on Him. It, it creates in us a hunger, a reminder uh, to say, okay, I need God more than I need bread. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God, I need, I need Him more than that. And so, so they enter into this time of, of fasting uh, as a part of their repentance. Now, maybe that's something that we need to begin to attribute uh, or, or include when we walk through repentance, is fasting. A time for us to withhold food or maybe it's something else. Uh, maybe there's some other thing in your life that, that, that can take, tend to take priority in your heart. That you would fast from that so that you can focus in on God. Um, you know, I would wonder if, how many of us would continue to walk in habitual sin if our standard procedure for repentance was not eating food. I think we're like, all right, I don't, it's not worth it to sin if i got to go without food, Right? So, so here's this process of repentance that is zeroing in on God, focusing in on Him, and, uh, and, and going without food so that we can uh, focus in on, on Him as a part of, of repentance. So they do that. They fast. Secondly, they put on sackcloth and ashes or dust. It says the earth. They put the earth on, on their heads. Sackcloth was like just this cheap clothing, burlap almost um, kind of robe or, or um, type of clothing and they put it on them it was very uncomfortable it was meant to be uncomfortable they put dust and earth on their head what they're doing here is they want to represent outwardly physically what is their position spiritually and inwardly they're trying to represent outwardly what is their position inwardly now this is huge because for us so often we do the opposite Right? We try to present something outwardly that is not the position of us inwardly. We try to put something outside of us, not sackcloth and ashes, right? We, we try to pretty it up on the outside when on the inside there's really a spiritual corruption or, 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 or there's brokenness. 
And so here's what the people of God are doing. They're, they're putting on sackcloth and ashes so that they could represent what is actually going on within them. What it also does is it, it re- reveals uh, positionally where God is and where they are. So they're, they're sackcloth and dust uh, of the earth. They're, they're declaring how low they are and how in need of God's mercy that they are. That God is holy, He is above all, and, and here they are, low and in need of God to work, to show mercy. This also runs uh, contrary to a lot of Christian culture that says, Jesus is my BFF, right? That we're, Jesus is my homeboy, or we sing songs that are like, Jesus is my boyfriend songs. And, uh, and, and we just think, hey, he, we're peer-to-peer here, and he just puts his arm around me like a, like a, like a, a bro, and like, hey, it's okay, buddy, just come along. And, and what happens with that, the problem with that, is positionally we begin to believe that we're not in need of great mercy. We're not in need of the grace of God. And, and, and so what we begin to think in our heads is, hey, we kind of deserved to be forgiven and saved. We were kind of awesome, and uh, I can see why God would do what he did for me. But that's contrary to what God's people are doing. They're putting on sackcloth and ashes and the earth, uh, 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 the earth on their head, and they're saying, positionally, you are far above us, God, and without you, we are nothing. We're lower than the worm. And this is, they're presenting outwardly what is going on inwardly. And this is their act of repentance, understanding that without God's mercy, they have no hope. And that's where we all are. Without God's mercy, we have no hope. Without God's grace, we have no heaven. That's where we all are positionally. And so, 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 and, and what this represented in their culture oftentimes was, was associated with funerals. So they're going into a state of mourning, a state of mourning. They're they're mourning that they've sinned against God. They're mourning their brokenness, and they're they're walking contrary to God's word. How often, when we step contrary to God's word, do we enter into a state of mourning, brokenness? Sure, it leads to repentance, but I think there needs to be a great time of reflection to understand that had God chosen not to give me mercy, here I lie. And so there's this state of, of mourning that they're, that they're walking through. And I, and I think, realistically, we can't really worship God until we see that. Until we see positionally where He is and positionally where we are. And again, this runs contrary to our American self-help book culture that just tells you, you know, continue to work on you, be the best you you can be. In reality, the best you you can be is terrible. And you need God's grace and mercy. You need Him to rain mercy never ceasing on you. And so they put on sackcloth and ashes to represent outwardly what was going on inwardly. And then you see there's a separation from, they separated themselves from foreigners. Essentially, Israel was surrounded by pagan idol worshipers that, that influenced them more than they influenced the pagans. 
And so they had to cut themselves off because, you know, God made an Abrahamic promise to his people, the Abrahamic covenant, in which they said that you will be a blessing to all nations. But what was happening is they were getting into all nations and they were being influenced by the by the idol worship and the false worship and they were being pulled away from the true worship of God and so for a period of time they had to isolate themselves separate themselves from the world so that they could re again begin being a blessing to the nations you can't be a blessing to the nations until you are right with God and and for us we we jump to the new testament where it says that we are to be in the world but not of it if you look like, smell like, live like the world, you will never be a blessing to them. They have what they have. They don't need another of what they have. They need something different than what they have. And so for us to be a blessing to the nations, we have to be a people that walk according to his way, according to his righteousness, not cowering down to culture, but walking according to his word. And so, yes, we, we, we might isolate separate but we're in it but we're not of it and by that i mean we're impacted we're, we're not we're not engaging our lives in the same sin as the world we shouldn't be we should be looking differently and we should be going to them now now listen we're not wholly huddling we're not turning our own butter we're not you know doomsday prepping we're not doing any of those things we want to be engaged in the world but so that we can be a blessing to them to the truths of the gospel in it but not of it and so this is our call. It's, uh, I forget who said it, but it says, the, the light that shines the brightest at home shines further into the darkness. And so we want to be a people that grow in our understanding of Christ, grow in our conformity to the Son of God. We want to grow in our righteousness, and we want to grow in our holiness, and we want, to, we want to take that and be a blessing to the nations around us. This nation, to all nations. And the only way we're going to do that is by walking according to His way. We're not going to be perfect in that, but that's the only way we're going to actually be a blessing. We don't become a blessing by being like the world. Again, countercultural to a lot of teachings you may have heard. We are only a blessing when we're not like the world, when we're God's children and we walk according to His way. So they separate from those around them so that they're not influenced by them in that, in that particular way. They want to walk with a, uh, a, a, in true worship of Him so that they can actually be a blessing to the to the lost people around them now let's jump to uh, to verse 6 and we're going to enter into the prayer time it says you are the Lord you alone you have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you you are the Lord, the God who's, who chose Abram from, uh, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous." Okay, the first thing I want us to notice about the prayer, again, sticking with our acrostic here, is there's a prayer of praise. A prayer of praise. Notice what he says. He starts it, you are the Lord, you alone. 
He ends it, you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And, and it goes on. I could go, uh, you know, I'm not going to read much of the text after this. I'm going to jump to, I think, 26. But, but if you were to read on the next 15 verses or so, uh, I mean, it's just a declaration of all that God has done. All his hand has moved on behalf of his people. It's just a declaration of praise unto God for who he is and what he has done for his people. I mean, if you just count the word you, you are Lord, you alone, like there's a ton of those within the first eight verses of of this chapter i would remind you of how our lord taught us to pray he said when you pray uh pray this our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name hallowed worship you you are holy you are mighty your, your name is above all names hallowed be your name to be praised is to be your name so when jesus taught us to pray he said start with praise start with the understanding of calling out who he is what he has done. Praise him when we, when we pray. It is, it, you know, and what we do first when we pray kind of represents what is our priority. Now, if we were to examine our prayer lives, um, first of all, I don't think anybody wants to sign up for that test. But if you do, if we were to examine that prayer life and we begin to kind of put it, run it through a filter and say, okay, um, do I, what is, what is the consistency throughout my prayer is it do i have a time of praise to god or do i immediately come in and saying i need i want bless this help me when we begin with praise what we're doing we're doing a lot of things when we begin with praise but what we what we are doing is we are uh, giving ourselves right perspective once again as we approach the throne of god and what that perspective is, is this, that he is God and we are not. He is sovereign and we are not. So when we begin our prayer time with, God, you are high above all. God, you, you are the creator of all that I know. You have moved in my life. You, you, you have worked in mighty ways. Your mighty hand is evident. You've been faithful to me. You, you've, you've worked in my family. You've worked in my children. You've worked through all my years of my life. You've been good. You've been faithful. You've filled us with joy. When you begin to, to praise him, what it does is positionally reminding your own heart, and your own sinful heart, of where God is on the food chain here. That he is worthy of worship, and we are not. So often our prayers become very self-centered, and, and if you were to just examine our prayer, you would get to the end of it and think, who's the one worthy of worship here? We pray prayers that if you were to examine them, it would look like I'm the one worthy of worship, and that God should be coming and bowing to my needs. But that's not true. God is to be praised. He is holy and mighty, and, and, and our prayers should begin with praise. They should begin with thanksgiving of all that he has done, all that he is. You see, again, Nehemiah 9 walks us through that, where he, he's praising God for uh, providing for his, Abraham, for, for uh, providing for the Israelites in, the, in slavery, for freeing them and bringing them to the promised land. And, and continuing to bring to them prophets to walk them according to, to God's way. Like they continue to recount God's faithfulness and, and, and his, his works and, uh, and giving him the praise that, that he, he is due. And so they're, they're praising him. And again, putting themselves in right perspective positionally 
that he is the one worthy of praise. And the very fact that he welcomes us into his presence to pray is a gift from God. And so we praise him and, 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 and we worship him in our prayers. I think this is a great place to begin because it fosters in us humility. It fosters in us a death to our own self, a dependency upon him. It, it, it cultivates a heart that is thankful for what God has done. It, it cultivates a heart that, that beholds Christ. The text goes on, um, and, and I'm going to jump to verse 26, but again, he, he recounts the promised land. He recounts a lot of different things. And, and, and then he's going to talk about uh, the sin. that he, he had started talking about it throughout the text, but I think 26 gets us to where we want to go. Uh, so if you'll jump to verse 26, it says this. Nevertheless, they, the, this was the Israelite, the fathers um, uh, of the people of God. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Verse 27. Therefore... You gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in time of their suffering, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give an ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Look at 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I think the second thing we see in this text is a prayer of confession. He's laying out for us just the pattern of God redeeming his people, bringing them to a particular place. They get kind of fat and sassy in that place, very comfortable, and then they forget God. They walk contrary to his way. God, in his kindness, allows them to be taken over by their enemies so that they will again see the error of their disobedience, come to their senses, and, and, and repent. And then when they repented, God poured out mercy on them again. And the cycle goes over and over and, and what nehemiah is doing here what this prayer is doing here it's it's confessing that these things are seen and realized and true and he's he's saying unto god we our fathers have sinned against you we have sinned against you we are stiff-necked people and we have not walked according to according to your ways and I want to make the argument this morning that I think confession is a huge part of our worship of God. 
that confession is necessary for sinners in need of grace. That we not, not just confess, but we confess often. Now, n- let me clear some things up here because uh, I want to explain to you what confession looks like because um, oftentimes I'll hear people pray, uh, uh, you know, God, forgive us for our sins today, uh, which is not a, not a bad prayer. However, I want you to understand theologically that uh, that prayer... Um, is is a prayer of confession it's not a prayer that affects your justification or your right standing with god at all if you are in christ you are fully in christ and 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 the sins of today and tomorrow cannot separate you from his hand you are in him and and so so the sins that were paid for on the cross were, were not were the sins you commit tomorrow were not like oops jesus forgot these no, no, he's paid for the penalty of your sin, past, present, and future. So if you are in Christ, you are in him fully. You have right standing before God. You're entirely justified before him. So when we confess sin, it's not confessing so that we can have right standing before God, so that we can have right justification before him. We are as saved as we will ever be, and because of Jesus, we are as pleasing to God as we will ever be. What our confession is, though, again, it is an acknowledgement of us, the sinful person, the sinful individual, what it took for those sins to be paid for on your behalf. So when we come to God and we confess our sins, what we're doing in that moment is we're acknowledging to God that were it not for the cross of Christ, we remain in our sin and we remain damned. And so what we do is we come under confession and we say, I've sinned, God. I've walked contrary to your way. I confess that sin to you. Not because I need a new salvation. I confess that sin to you because I realize the price it costs to save me. And I want to give you praise and honor and glory because streams of mercy were never ceasing to me. And so it calls for songs of loudest praise. And so our confession is an act of worship of the cross of Christ that paid for our sins. It's it's an acknowledgement of the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf and a praise of what he has done and taken our place. It is an acknowledgement that we, without Christ, would have remained under the wrath of God, but because of what Jesus has done, the wrath of God does not remain on us. And so when we confess our sins, we're coming to him saying, God, we have walked contrary to your way. And this is the things that Christ went to the cross for. So that these things don't mar my standing with you. He has paid the penalty for the sins that I've committed. And I praise you, God, for your mercies are never ceasing. This is what confession should look like. It should look like an understanding of the mercy of God on our life. I'll remind you of Ephesians that says that God is rich in mercy. We are sinners, but God, being rich in mercy, made a way for us to be right with Him forever through His own Son. God is slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. 
It's the only thing that the scripture says he's rich in. He's, he, he is bountifully rich in mercy. And praise God, because we need a lot of it. And so he's rich in mercy. He, he's a merciful God. And so every time we bow before him in, in confession, we don't bow as arrogant people. We bow as humble people, realizing the work that he has accomplished for us on the cross. It's the only way we have the power to stand. He is rich in mercy. And so a prayer of confession that they're doing here, they're acknowledging they're wrong, which again, uh, many Christians shy away from acknowledging where they have, they have sinned because they don't want to deal with it. But do you understand, Christian, that you not dealing with it is another tactic of the enemy to keep you in apathetic spirituality. But if you would come to Christ and you would confess, it can be the most worshipful you know, move in your heart and life that's been there in years. If you would come to the only one who can deal with your sin, it will never be swept under the rug. You have to be vulnerable and open with God and say, these are the ways that I have sinned. And let him pour out his mercy upon you. Understand the mercy that has been lavished on you because of the cross of Christ. Understand it and worship him even more. It shouldn't make us, confession shouldn't make us more worshipful people. Now let's go on. Verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not, and here's the, here's the petition, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, and our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, you, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, even in their own kingdom and amid great goodness that you have gave them and enlarged and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Before I get into the next point, which is prayer of petition, I, I think it's important to notice that they don't try to squirm out of consequences. They understand that sin brings with it consequences. And part of being a godly man or a godly woman is understanding the responsibility of those consequences and walking in them. He doesn't say, God, you did this and that wasn't fair. No. He said, you gave us up to our enemies and we are slaves to kings and we deserved it all because we walked contrary to your way. 
That's a little different, isn't it? And acknowledging that God is holy in His just, just punishment of sin in our life. Now, for you, the believer, that punishment does not lead to death. He'll discipline those whom He loves, but He certainly will not leave you to your own ways. He will discipline you and draw you with His kindness back to Himself. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Stop fighting the consequences of that sin and, 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 and say unto God, I deserve that and more. So would you move to continue to pour out your mercy on a person that doesn't deserve it and deserves far worse than what I've gotten? Then he goes on again in the petition, prayer petition here. And one of the things that you'll notice if you read through Nehemiah 9 is that they, in, the, in the prayer he uses uh, the Bible. He uses the Bible. You know, oftentimes when we get to the ask part of our prayers, that gets kind of squirrely because, uh, you, know, um, how, you know, how do we know if we're, what we're praying is praying according to the will of God? We want to be a people that pray according to God's will. How do we know that what we're praying is according to, to God's will? God, I want a Ferrari. Your will be done, right? Uh, and, and, and how do we know that, you know, because there are folks, and, and we laugh about it, but there are folks literally all over the world that have this warped sense of John 14, 14, which says, if you ask anything in my name, you will receive it. So they start naming and claiming it. God, we pray for a jet, and God, we pray for whatever, you know, and, and, and we begin to say, hey, this is the secret code to, to, to praying God's will as we just kind of name and claim it. The problem with that is um, it's just not biblical, and it doesn't work like that. One of the ways we can know we're praying according to God's will is if we pray according to God's word. If we pray his word, now that's important because you've got to know his word. You've got to understand his word. Um, how much greater in, in whatever you bring to the Lord, whether you're looking for physical healing or you're, you're, you're looking for God to move in a job situation or, or to move in your kids' lives, to, 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 to the end of that, not just be your own comfort, but to the end of God moving in that way, be to his own glory. God, save my children for your name's sake. God, I want this job or I want this move in the job not so that I can get a bigger paycheck, not so I can get greater influence or success, but for the glory of God. If I can't glorify you more there, I don't want it. God, heal me of cancer to the glory of God. But if I can glorify you more with this tumor, then to the glory of God, I'll suffer. When we pray according to God's word, we're praying according to his will. We, we want what he wants more than we want what we want. And this is how he continues to align our hearts and our desires up according with his heart and his desires. We pray His word. We pray His will. You know, one of the things that God 
commands us to do is to take the gospel into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. In, in Acts, we, when we preach through Acts, we take the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So one of our prayers that we can certainly come alongside of God's heart is that what, if He would move in our life, that it would be to the glory of His name among the nations. And that may be what you need to pray. That may be what you need to begin to ask God. If God, I want you to move in this way. I want this promotion. I want you to heal here. I want you to do these things. But I want them to do it so it matters eternally. I want my life to count for things beyond my own kingdom. I want my life to count for more than what I'm going to leave my kids in inheritance. I want my life to count for, for, for the gospel covering the earth as the water covers the seas. So when we come alongside God we, in our prayer time and we, we pray those kinds of things, that does a wonder on our own self-centeredness. So our prayers are often going to change from being just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me to yielding ourselves to Him and saying, you give for your own namesake. And I'm, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be content in all things. I pray that you would move in this way to the, to the, for the sake of the glory of God among my neighbors and the nations. And when we align ourselves with God's word, we begin to align ourselves with God's will. And that's the kind of believers we want to be. We're not trying to build our own kingdoms. We're trying to say, I want my days to count for something beyond the days. I want my life to count for something beyond when I stop breathing. I want it to count for forever. And so praying the scripture, I think, is the greatest way to do that. And then you see they yield to God in covenant. Um, the end of the passage, they, and we'll talk more about this next week, so I'm not going to talk about it a lot here, but they, um, the, the end of the text talks about, because of all this, his mercy, our sin, we're slaves, he's still merciful, he's still good, we're praying that he would not forget us because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing what's that firm covenant a firm covenant is to walk according to his ways they yield themselves to god they say we we want to walk in obedience we don't just want to leave it here we want to we want to now get up from repenting get up from confessing get up from praying and walk according to your way we covenant to say uh, we we're going to move our lives according to your way and that's part of the repenting part too. It's getting up and walking according to God's way. And so we see with God's people here just honestly an ongoing repentance, which is, is normal for believers. That we, we're constantly, now there's times of rejoicing, but we oftentimes become aware of sin in our hearts. As a matter of fact, the closer we grow to God, the, the more we'll be aware of how dark our hearts are. And we'll begin to say, God, I, I'm... I'm more wicked than I ever even thought. And so we walk in a state of repentance. We, we, we confess, we worship him for who he is and the mercy that he pours out on us, his 
his people. And so we see that through the people of God. They come under conviction. They, they have their sin revealed to them. And, and instead of sweeping it under a the rug, they step in repentance. They walk, and then they get up and walk according to God's way. May we be people that do this very thing. This is not easy work. It's not easy work. Um, this is not something that you're going to, uh, you know, type in on Google how to best repent. You get five steps and you get it done. This takes literally laying yourself in the very presence of God and in his word, being known by him, and then getting up and walking according to his way. May we be a people that do just that. Let's pray together. Father, I think one of the greatest truths in this is that true repentance takes responsibility for their own sin and doesn't sit back and blame God for situation or consequences. And so, Father, I pray that we will be a people that are quick to take responsibility. Stop trying to hide behind an outward appearance that doesn't reveal an inward reality. And that we would be vulnerable and honest with you, the living God, who sees all, knows all, anyway. <laughs> so, Father, would you help us to be a people that worship you through repentance and confession. And God, you are worthy of praise. You are Lord of all. You are sovereign. You are creator. You hold the universe in your hands. You, you told each star where to be. You, the sea is controlled by your hand. Like there is not a leaf that blows across the ground that isn't according to your hand. You, you, are, you are God. And you are worthy of worship and praise. And though you are holy, you are far above, far above us, far beyond our even comprehension that, that our, even our righteousness is like filthy rags before you. You are also rich in mercy. So rich in mercy, in fact, that instead of pouring out the wrath that I deserved because of my sin on me. You poured it out on Jesus. And He took the wrath that I deserved. That's mercy. I did not get what I deserved. That's mercy. But it doesn't stop there. When I talk about your, you lavished your grace upon us too, that we, we don't just get forgiven for sins, though that would be enough to, for a life of praise of who you are, but you adopted us as children of God, sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are brothers. He, the first among many. We, we get eternal life. We get abundant life now, eternal life forever. You have given us the Holy Spirit. You have given us the 
the gifts of that Holy Spirit. You, you have lavished your grace upon us. We are considered righteous, pure and above reproach, as Colossians says. I didn't earn that. I didn't deserve that. And that's the grace of our God. So great is our God and worthy to be praised. And that the things mentioned in this few moments are a tip of the iceberg of the things that you are praiseworthy for. And so God, I pray that you would bring your people to confession and repentance and a realization of what the cross has accomplished on their behalf. I also pray that if there's someone that doesn't know Christ, that the wrath of God still remains on them, that they, that they have not dealt with their own sin problem and issue, that they would come to you. And as Romans says, that, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that they would call upon your name and that you would, in fact, save them. We love you. And you are our only hope. In life and in death, you're it. Jesus alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.